I'm actually blown away. You know, it's scary to come to church for the first time. It's scary to stand up here, not because I'm scared of people, but I'm scared to not impart what God is saying. I carry that very strongly on my heart because God is not a God of information. He's a God of transformation. And when he speaks the same thing in worship that he's speaking through the word, it is just amazing. The songs were not by accident today. Sometimes we can just come and we think we're singing a song, but Zay and James, well done. You listen to God and the rest of the team, you listen to God, you wait on him for what God is wanting to say, and that's what you bring. So let's just talk about Christmas. For me, Christmas, I've got to watch where I go, hey? I've got, I've got a cage that I can stand in. I can't go further because of the recording, so I'm trying to be good today. But at Christmas time, for me, my favorite time of Christmas was when I was between the ages of 7 and 12. My dad had just returned from ministry, and I, my brother and I, two children in the family, suddenly had become four children because my parents had twins by accident. Um, no, no one is born by accident, just saying, no one is born by accident. And what stood out to me in those few years was that there was an incredible revival happening in the church that my dad was in. And I got to sit in a lady's um, Sunday school class. Her name was Anne Skevington. I don't remember many names, but I remember her name. And she introduced us to the Chronicles of Narnia much to my dad's horror. He was, not a he was not a fan of Chronicles of Narnia, of C.S. Lewis, but, and so I didn't really get into C.S. Lewis. But the older I've grown, the more I've come to value what he adds and his contribution to Christianity and the way he's spoken about God and the way he communicates things of the gospel in a very different way. So I'm going to be basing some of what I've got today on his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is actually a story, an allegory about the gospel. It's a gospel story. It introduces the lion of Judah. It introduces the kingdom of darkness. And it has four children that are the central theme. So these four children are caught in World War II there's a lot of, they're in London, they're growing up in London, and there's bombing in London. And they get shipped, actually trained, but shipped out to the countryside to an old professor who lives in a country home. And this country home is large. It is filled with long passages, with doors, and it's got lots of empty rooms, perfect for hide and seek. It's got rooms lined with bookcases, my absolute heaven. And it's got a room with a very long room, with portraits all around the room, and it's got another room with nothing except for a wardrobe. And we're going to come to back to the wardrobe just now. But for now, I want us to imagine that we are little children that have gone to visit this old professor, white hair, and we are in this room of portraits. 
and we're looking around this room of portraits, and all we're seeing are heroes of the faith, Old Testament heroes of the faith. We are seeing Jonah, we are seeing Noah, we are seeing Sarah, we are seeing Abraham, we are seeing Isaac, we are seeing Ruth, we are seeing a whole host of Old Testament heroes of the faith. But one of them stands out far more than all of the others, and his name is Moses. He was raised, Moses as a child, was an Israelite who was raised in the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was incredibly powerful in speech and action. He was chosen by God to rule and to deliver and to lead the Israelites, Israelites, Israelites out into freedom. He was known as the person who was the most powerful in performing signs and wonders he got given the living words that have been passed on to us, which we still have. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I hope I've got that right. We still have it. I haven't got it right. <laughs> okay. Well, with the first five books of the Bible. <laughs> Thanks, Dawn. <laughs> um, but he was known as the greatest prophet and teacher in all of Israel until Jesus arrived. And the one person that Jesus was compared to was this guy called Moses. And he was greater than Moses. In fact, Moses, as were many of the Old Testament guys, was a shadow of Jesus. So I was driving in thinking about shadows this week. I was driving down the road into, into this church, and there were shadows, beautiful shadows. It was early in the morning. There were beautiful shadows on the road. And I could tell partly what the trees of those shadows looked like. I could tell that the shadows represented trees that were big. I could tell that the shadows represented trees that were tall. I could tell that the shadows represented trees that were fairly dense, but light was still able to get through. But I couldn't tell what the tree was. I couldn't tell what the detail of that tree was. And that's what the Old Testament does. It's a shadow there are shadows in the Old Testament. There's, Moses is a shadow of Jesus. Jesus, we get more detail in Jesus, but Moses points to Jesus. But apart from that, Moses was the most humble man of all. He actually called himself that. Go figure. But he was the most humble man of all. But I don't know about you. If I think of Moses, the impression that I have on my mind is the children's Bible, where Moses got his hands raised, he's got a rod in his hand, and he's got two walls of water on either side of him. Sometimes we can see pictures of the millions of people who passed through that, that, um, the Red Sea, but that is for me the most dramatic picture that I've got of Moses. Moses was no stranger to water. He was born as a baby. He was born as a baby, that's good. Um, that's what we want. But he was born at a time where babies were being killed off. The Israelite babies were being killed off. His parents hid him for three months. They put him in a basket after three months. He got found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter called him Moses because he was pulled out or drawn out of water. And we know that in the Jewish tradition, a person's name points to their destiny. And water is part of Moses' destiny. The next time we see his engagement with water is when he flees from Egypt. He's about 40 years old. He flees from Egypt because he's killed someone, not a good thing to do. 
And he lands in the desert, and he comes to a well there, and he meets a woman at the well who cannot get her sheep to get water because other shepherds are keeping her and her sisters away. And he manages to sort the situation out. He's killed a man before, so he must have been a bit scary. But he manages to sort that out, and the woman he eventually gets to marry. The next time, so he's 40 years there. The next time is 40 years later. He's now 80 years old. And God calls him to lead the children out of Egypt, the Israelites out of Egypt. And his first miracle, the first wonder he performs is turning water into blood. To blood. Jesus' first miracle. And, and no, that's 100%, because I was going to talk about it, then I thought time-wise I'm not going to talk about it. But Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Quite amazing. So Moses was showing God's power over all the gods of Egypt. The next thing we have is when, just I don't know how much later, a few months or whatever, later he's leading the people out of Egypt into the desert. And he gets caught between the Red Sea, which is about 19 to 20 kilometers along. We don't realize that. It wasn't just a little river that he had to cross. It was big. He's got that in front of him. He's got the Egyptian army behind him on their chariots. And he's saying, God, and the people are crying out to Moses. And he's saying, God, what do we do with this? Where do we go? And God says, lift up your rod and the seas will part. And the Israelites part, go through on dry ground, and then the rivers collapse, the walls collapse, and the, the Egyptians drown. Then they're in the desert. And in the desert, what do you need? You need water. They travel from oasis to oasis. The first one they reach three days into their journey is called Mara, which means the waters of bitterness. Because the water is bitter and they can't drink it and they cry out to Moses and they complain to Moses and God, Moses goes to God. God says to Moses, take a rod, throw it into the water and the water will become sweet and it became sweet. A few weeks later, they arrive at a place called Rephidim and there's no water. They complain to Moses, they gripe, they argue with Moses and Moses goes to God and God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the elders and I want you to go to a rock. And I'm going to stand on that rock. I'm going to be before you on that rock. And you're going to strike the rock and the water will flow. It will gush out and the people will drink. Moses does that and the water gushes out and the people drink. But I want to stop for a moment there because there's a lot just in that. See, God calls the rock in Hebrews, it says Christ was the rock. The rock that was struck for our sins. The rock that was bruised to make us whole. The rock that was beaten, that was crushed, that was whipped, was Christ. And we're going to come back to that just now. But the water that flowed represents the Holy Spirit. Because God says for those who believe in him, out of their bellies, out of their innermost parts, will flow streams of living waters. 
So the water represents the Holy Spirit. And then we, we have like 37 years of silence. We don't know what really happened in those 37 years, but we know that the Israelites were in the desert and the first generation were pretty much killed off, died off. And we're now dealing with the second generation of Israelites in the desert. And they arrive at this place called Kadesh. Maybe the same place as before when they arrived at Kadesh, maybe a different place that's not terribly relevant. But what is relevant is that once again, there's no water. Then the first year, first month of the 40th year in the desert, and there's no water. And the people come to Moses and Aaron, and they complain, and they argue. And it almost sounds like they present a legal argument to Moses and to Aaron. And Moses and Aaron go to God. They fall face down in desperation to God, and the glory of God appears to them. And God gives them a list of directions. And he says this to them. Take the staff that is in your hand that you used. Gather the whole congregation. Speak to the rock. And it will give water. And you will take the water to the people. And the people and their livestock will, will drink. So Moses takes the staff. Moses and Aaron take the staff they gather the whole congregation of the Israelites, but he doesn't speak to the rock. He speaks to the people, and he strikes the rock. But God, in his faithfulness, still, the water still gushes out. The water still flows, and the people and their livestock are able to drink. We're going to come back to Moses just now, but what I want us to understand is that God is faithful to his promises. All his promises are yes and amen. Because he cannot deny himself. He does not change according to our behavior. He is still himself. What he did on the cross, he will never undo. He will never change what he did for us on the cross. He is faithful. So his faithfulness is not dependent on me. It's dependent on who he is. But at that point, God disqualifies Moses and Aaron from entering the promised land. And I've wrestled, when I first read this earlier this year, I've wrestled with the scripture. It says, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving you. At that point, they were disqualified from entering the promised land. So God first provided the water, and then he chided, an old-fashioned word, but he chided Moses and Aaron. And my struggle has been with this verse. I sat for days struggling with this verse, and I don't know that I fully, fully understand it yet. But what I do understand is that Moses was disobedient. God had said to him, speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock. And I really believe that God is speaking to us about revival through different quarters, 
How God moves at one time is not necessarily how God is going to move at another time. And we need to be very sensitive to what God is saying today for today's situation. John said two weeks ago, he said, we need to discern if God is telling us to move the mountain or speak to the mountain. We need to discern what God is saying. Moses' disobedience was based on distrust. When God gives us a command or an instruction or prompting, we may not always understand why. Why, God, are you saying that I must speak to the rock? Moses did not necessarily understand that that rock represented Christ, who had already been beaten and didn't need to be beaten again. He suffered once and for all, for all our sins. It is more than enough. He does not have to suffer again. We do not have to add to what he's done to be forgiven. We get to confess, but he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. But we do not need to, I do not need to put myself and beat myself because he's done it all for me. The next time he comes is to bring salvation to his people. He's not going to be beaten again. Moses did not understand that. So because he did not understand it, there was distrust. He couldn't trust what God was saying. And sometimes we need to trust what God is saying without understanding. God does not always, we do not always understand. Our part is to believe in the work of Jesus and to confess with our mouths. May the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, O oh God. The confession of our mouths reveals the condition of our hearts. What we say reveals what is in our hearts. So if we want to know where we are at, we look at what we're saying. And then finally, God, Moses disrespected God because he misrepresented God to the people. He knew God had revealed to him like no one else. God had revealed himself to Moses as this God who was loving, as this God who was kind, this God who was forgiving, whose love lasted forever and ever. But the God, the person that Moses represented to the people was an angry God, was a harsh God, and he misrepresented God. And as that, Moses could not lead the people into the promised land. He could not enter into the promised land. So how do we know the condition of, God, of Moses' heart? Again, by what he says. And this is what he says. Listen here, you rebels. Are we supposed to bring water out of the rock? I mean, you can just hear his tone. There's so much in that tone. First of all, there's frustration. And that frustration comes out in an insult, instead of interceding for the people. He was frustrated, and I understand his frustration. I think all of us can understand his frustration when people are doing things that they know are not good for them or whatever the situation is. But he insulted the people instead of interceding. 
This was a man who before had stood in the gap and when God had said to Moses, I want to annihilate this Israelite nation and I'm going to start the nation through you again. And Moses had said, no, God, remember, you are kind, you're gracious, you're merciful. And he'd interceded for the people. Now he was insulting the people. It's the first time in the Bible that someone is called Mara. We've got places that are called Mara up to now. But this is the first time someone is called Mara. And to call someone Mara means they are defiant, they are rebellious. They are almost lifting up their hands in defiance. It's, it was a harsh thing. In fact, it was so harsh that in Deuteronomy, we hear that someone, if you've got a son that is Mara, that is rebellious, that is defiant, take him to the gates and stone him. It was serious. To call someone Mara, you didn't just call someone Mara. But what Moses also did not realize and what, Moses, what God showed Moses, what God reflected to Moses, was that he was Mara. He was rebellious. He was defiant. He was lifting up his hand to God in defiance by what he did and by what he said. You see, often we, it's so easy to see the faults in others and not see the faults in ourselves. Romans 2 verse, Romans 2 verse 1 says when we judge one another and then commit the same sins, we, commit, we condemn ourselves. And it often happens that it's so easy to see the faults in others, but not see the faults in ourselves. So sometimes I find, and it's not always nice, but I find that if I'm starting to judge someone about a certain issue, I need to look at that issue in my own life. And I need to say, is this issue something in my own life with which I need to deal? Moses' focus had shifted. He'd shifted from God is able to we are unable. He was focused on their inability instead of God's inability. We stand in a situation in our land and we think, how on earth? We are completely unable to sort this out. But we forget we have got a God who is more than able to do what only he can do. Nothing that Moses had achieved was of his own doing. When he parted the sea, all he did was he lifted up a rod and the seas parted. When he performed the miracles in Egypt, all he did was lift up a rod. He did speak as well, let's give him credit, but he didn't actually do the miracles. And John 15 verse 5 says, apart from God, apart from me, Jesus, we can do nothing. Everything that we get to do, which carries eternal success or eternal significance, is because of the work of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. When we see the water gushing through, the water gushing out of our innermost beings, that refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just want to dwell in us. He wants to flow through us. He wants to gush through us, and he wants to make a difference.
how we know that their focus was wrong, they said, must we? It had never been about them. It had always been about God. And finally, his words revealed his lack of faith. When we speak, when we communicate, it's not just the words we say, but it's the way we say it. And Moses was impatient. He got to a stage where he was impatient. And there were possibly reasons for it. He just lost his sister, Miriam. He hadn't processed. They didn't grieve Miriam. They grieved Aaron. They grieved Moses, but they never grieved Miriam. He had not processed his grief. He was tired. He was 120 years old. Give him some credit, you know. He was strong. But it was not an excuse. We were listening to a, a, a movie the other day, and they were talking. It was in the Middle East, and they made the statement which was translated, a lack of faith is a lack of patience. And I just thought, my goodness, that is so powerful. If I look at the times that I've been impatient, was that a lack of faith? And in every single instance, I can say absolutely yes. So if we want to see where our faith sits, let's look at our patience levels. It says there, they could not enter the inheritance. They could not enter their rest because their hearts were wrapped in unbelief. But yet God was so faithful. Moses still continued to walk with God. He still continued to lead the people to the edge of the promised land. He still got to see the extent of the land that was being given to the Israelites. And he still got to stand at the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, with Jesus. Out of all the Old Testament people, it was Moses and Elijah. So that break, that lack of faith, although it stopped him from entering into what God had for him, did not break his relationship with God. Our failure does not mean we are a failure, and we need to differentiate that. If I fail at something, it does not mean I, my identity, is a failure. Okay, it means I failed at something, and we need to keep that in mind. So getting back to C.S. Lewis, because I know you've been sitting there thinking, how on earth does this tie in with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? I want us to imagine that we are children. Well, well let's look at what, they d what happened. The children eventually discovered this wardrobe and this room. Lucy, the youngest one, discovered this wardrobe. And she went and she hid in that wardrobe and felt for the back of that wardrobe. But she never got the back of the wardrobe. She entered into another kingdom. And she experienced some things in that other kingdom that she came back to tell her brothers and sister about. And they didn't believe her. And they went to feel this wardrobe. They said, no ways, this is not true. And they went to feel this wardrobe. And all they could feel was the hardness of the back of the wardrobe. See, what they believed was what they saw. They could not enter into and experience the other kingdom until there was a belief that that other kingdom existed. If we want to experience the fullness of God's kingdom, we need to come to God as little children. 
without bitterness, without hardness of heart, because that will inhibit us from experiencing his kingdom. So I want to encourage us, let's open the wardrobe, the door to the wardrobe of our hearts, and let's take a look inside. Are our hearts hard and unyielding? Or when we spend that time in the closet with God, are we able to experience something of the unseen world that we are able to bring into the seen world? How do I know what is in my heart? How do I know if my heart is hard? I look at things like impatience in my life. I look at things like, am I snappy with my husband? I'm never like that. I am literally building up to this. You cannot believe how I had to work on my heart. I haven't felt like that the whole year, but anyway, I think it was God's preparation. <laughs> Sorry, doll. Um, but I, I was very aware that I was very snappy. And so I was aware my heart was not in a good space. Our words reveal what is in our heart. The confession of our mouths reveals the condition of our hearts. The way I speak to others will reveal what's in my heart. The way I react, rather than just responding, reveals what's in my heart. So how do I ensure, God says today, if we want to hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. So how do we ensure that we're not hardening our hearts? How do I ensure that I'm keeping my heart soft? And these are some of the things that you can do, especially now that most of us or some of us will have some time off. Take time to soak in the word. Take time to be responsive to the promptings of the Spirit, to listen to and be responsive to the promptings of the Spirit. Take time to sit in solitude and silence. Sometimes all we want to do is we just want to speak, and if we're not speaking and doing something, we feel we're not doing anything, and it's not enough. It's more than enough. God speaks to us in places of silence and solitude. Take time aside to journal. I suspect that Moses hadn't processed his sister's death. Take time to process the things that are building up in your heart and let them out and get them out. Don't let them build. Spend time in nature. There's nothing better than spending time in nature. Not TV, not social media, not browsing on our phones. Nature is one of God's best, literally one of God's best medicines. Absolutely. And don't isolate. Stay connected. Might be time to take a bit of time out, but don't isolate. Stay connected. And above everything else, guard your heart. So I just want to end with this little bit of insight into the kingdom of Narnia. When the children, they all eventually got into the kingdom of Narnia. And it was this kingdom that had been in winter for a hundred years. But even though it was in winter, there was no Christmas. Okay, this was the UK. The UK has Christmas in winter, but there'd be no Christmas for a hundred years. And we start in Narnia to hear rumblings. 
Father Christmas arrives on the scene, and Father Christmas here represents the Holy Spirit in the story who gives out gifts to empower people. That's a sad, but we start to hear rumblings of Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he is already here. Aslan is this lion, the lion of Judah, who represents Christ. I want to say today, the lion of Judah is on the move. Perhaps he is already here. We are hearing rumblings of God's revival, of revival coming in Durban and in our land. What are we focused on? Where's our faith? Because God is on the move. So my encouragement to us today is to guard our hearts, to prepare ourselves, to guard our hearts, because God is on the move. Amen.